Well, good morning. Good morning. Um, my name's Wes. Uh, it's a real privilege to uh, get to speak this morning. I am a note reader. Uh, I've prepared all of my stuff for this morning. On my notes, I, 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 am, I wrote it for, for you and for us, and I'll, and I'll this morning read it for you and for us. Um, the, um, and Scott, I have an Android. I was not, I was not offended. But the QR, the QR code does work on Android, so that's what it is. Um, so as has been mentioned a couple times, we've been taking a break from our normal pattern of teaching uh, chapter by chapter through whole books. Uh, of the Bible to focus on central concepts uh, for every believer of Jesus. Uh, so this is week four, the final part in our vision series, and today's lesson is all about God's word, uh, the value and purpose uh, that it has in our lives as believers. Uh, I'll be working frequently out of 2 Timothy 3, as we read earlier, um, but I'll also be pointing to a lot of scripture today. So uh, we're talking about God's word. We're going to use a lot of God's word. We're going to use as few of my words as possible. Um, so 2 Timothy 3, Sean did not mess up the reading. I gave him two, like initially too many verses. And uh, so we really are doing mostly verses kind of 16 and 17. And we might go a little further than that. Um, as I was studying the last couple of weeks, uh, along with scripture, uh, I've been using a couple of helpful resources. Uh, one is Wayne Grudem's book, Systematic Theology. Um, I know some of us have dug into that some. And the other is R.C. Sproul's book, Everyone's a Theologian. Uh, so both were great help to me, give me some big categories to think about, uh, and they continually pointed to God's word itself as the best and final source of information regarding his word. Uh, so my, my hope and intent today is that my words about God's true word would be an encouragement and help for you all, uh, and that you would leave with a rejuvenated delight in his word. Uh, so a, a traditional way that, uh, that, you know, this can be approached sometimes is breaking it down to four parts, uh, kind of thinking of scripture in four parts, um, the authority of God's word, the clarity, the necessity, and the sufficiency. I kind of condensed it a little bit, blended them together a little bit. My, my three points, and I forgot to make a slide, I'm sorry, but I'll, I'll try to announce as we move into the next section, but three, three parts, why we should trust God's word, why we should delight in God's word, and why we should cherish God's word. So let's pray. God, we are opening your word this morning to gain a better understanding of who you are and how to think about this gift you've given us. Please awaken our sleepy hearts and minds to freshly consider your word. Amen. Okay, so just for a moment, think about how you would describe to someone what the word of God is. Okay, so maybe there's a scenario, I'm just, this is hypothetical, but maybe not so hypothetical, for, you know, I mean, we've had this. Maybe they come to you because they were told they needed to seek out the word of God for direction in their life. And they come to you and ask you, what is that? What is the word of God? So give it a quick think. Okay, so with that in mind, even the simple phrase, the word of God, has several aspects to it. A couple of us may have been thinking along the lines of the commands of God, like words he used to speak all that we know into existence, or different uh, words he used to address people directly, like Abraham or Moses, the, the words of God. A couple of us may have been thinking about the words of God which are given to prophets of old, and to those prophets, uh, and those prophets spoke them in a thus says the Lord kind of way. Um, words uh, that were then presented audibly by humans as the word of God. Uh, many of us were probably thinking about the Bible, which is known to believers also as the written word of God. Uh, some of us may have been recalling the times in scripture in which Jesus Christ is referred to as the word. 
So there's a lot, there's a lot of ways that when we think about the word of God, there's a lot of stuff that's packed in there, and they're all correct. Uh, today, we'll mostly focus on the written word of God, so the Bible or scripture, I'll kind of use those words interchangeably, um, but we'll also kind of be talking about Jesus as the word as well, but primarily written. Okay, so kind of first starting out, like why should we trust the word of God? So we can start right in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, as Sean read, all scripture is breathed out by God. So we'll start here, um, because if the word of God is to be believed, to have power that it claims about itself, then we as Christians need to truly trust and believe that what we have in our possession is the pure and undiluted words of our creator, preserved faithfully for us to treasure. And so, by the way, the cornerstone of this whole section about trust is going to be uh, Jesus Christ and his authority. So I'm just going to build on him to form this whole argument. So if you get lost or bored for a minute, totally fine. Just sit near Jesus for a couple minutes. You'll be, you'll be just great. Okay, so, so we read here the claim in 2 Timothy is that God, not man, is the true source of all that we have in Scripture, even though every word was indeed written down by a human hand. So that's a bold claim. Um, now, I, I'll just be honest. I, I really don't possess a lot of knowledge on this whole topic. Uh, I have like a thimbleful of knowledge of how the canon of Scripture was identified and our English translation of the Bible came into my hands. But I will share that thimble full of, of knowledge in the hope that it stirs your confidence as it did mine. And there's massive amounts of more information on this uh, if, if you're interested to go deeper in this topic. I'm going to go like a really high-level summary of it. Um, so here it is. Our Bible in its entirety, 66 books. The Old Testament is composed of 39 books written almost entirely in Hebrew between like 1400 B.C. and 400 B.C. The writers include Moses, David, many prophets, and the content is a vast, vast wealth of God's wisdom, laws, and works. And mixed in with all of this are the promises made by God. Some were fulfilled within the pages of the Old Testament, and others were waiting for fulfillment. Then after several hundred years of God causing nothing to be recorded in Scripture, he sends a son, Jesus Christ. And at that time, he once again begins to breathe out new words to have recorded for our sake. So it's a perfect time to remember how Jesus is described in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we're told that Jesus is the manifested Word of God. We're told that he has always existed, and he has always existed with God, and in fact is God. So there's just like ton packed in there, and all things were made through him. So these three verses are incredible, and even if we don't read too deeply, we can see that what is being presented here in John 1 is an unconstrained claim about the authority of Jesus Christ. The very one who breathed scripture has now come to earth, he has the power to breathe new words and to wield his passwords with authority. And there's another kind of powerful three-verse combo, very similar in Hebrews 1.1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
So we have in this passage an acknowledgement of the Old Testament being the product of God speaking to the prophets of old, but now he speaks through his son, whose word has full authority in all the universe. Since it was through him, it was all created. So how do we see Jesus, the living word, once he arrives, interacting with his own past words from the Old Testament? Consistently and constantly. Over the course of his ministry, Jesus is recorded quoting or referencing passages from at least 14 different books of the Old Testament across dozens of occurrences. One such time to point out is when Jesus is hungry after fasting 40 days, and the devil comes to tempt him. As in Matthew 4.4, Jesus affirms the necessity and sufficiency of Scripture when he replies to Satan, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So not only does this show us what Jesus thinks of the words of his Father, but he even uses the prior words in the Old Testament to make the statement, taking this from Deuteronomy 8.3. Jesus demonstrates trust in the power of God's word to fight temptation and respond to attacks from Satan. He says in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an, I an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So here, he is upholding Old Testament, the Old Testament as unchangeable and serving a specific intended purpose. There are no unnecessary parts in God's word. Jesus went on, he fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament messianic prophecies regarding himself, further validating and proving the trustworthiness of God's word. He directly addresses this topic and asserts his authority in John 5.39 <clears throat> when he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So he's saying, These, all of this in the Old Testament is pointing to me. Now you listen to me. And he's speaking in that time to Pharisees, and that really riled him up because he's saying, I, I am here. I have now the authority to speak new, new life, new words, new scripture. So if you know Jesus, but at times struggle wondering if the scripture we have is accurate or complete or sufficient, I find it helpful to consider this. Start with Jesus, who teaches only that which is true. Jesus had the opportunity and the authority to correct in Scripture anything that we humans may have written incorrectly over thousands of years or misremembered or twisted up until that point, but he doesn't. What he did in his earthly ministry was again and again affirm that existing Scripture was the true word of God as he used it throughout his ministry. He never cast doubt on any historical events described in the Bible nor that any of the people mentioned in Scripture actually existed. He never cast doubt on any of that. He refers to the flood, Jonah and the great fish, Sodom and Gomorrah, Adam and Eve, I Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, the prophets. All of these and more were used by Jesus in his earthly teaching. They aren't quaint children's stories. As followers of Jesus, we must imitate his total and complete trust of Scripture as the true word of God. So just to take this a little bit further, um, <clears throat> briefly consider more about Jesus and the New Testament. I'll be really brief here, but the collection of books in the New Testament, 27 books, written over a shorter span of time, about 50 years. It was like 44 A.D. to 94 A.D. These were written over a much shorter duration of time. Um, the authors in the New Testament, mostly apostles, 
uh, mostly the orig- of the original 12, um, but also Paul, um, who was called later by Jesus. When the early church leaders were trying to identify and gather the writings, which were the true, genuine word of God to form the New Testament, the criteria they used included whether any writing had authorship by or under the supervision of an apostle, whether the writing was widely received by the early churches, and whether the, that writing had compatibility with the already identified books. So they weren't, they weren't looking to identify, uh, or they weren't looking to bestow, uh, you know, this is God's word. I declare this to be God's word. They're, they simply were being led by the Spirit to identify where God's word was present in the writings. So man does not declare what is God's word. God declares what's God's word. We identify it through the help of the Holy Spirit. So great care was taken um, and prayer submitted during this process. So of all of the books now identified, what's really cool is historians have, this is all, all kind of under the umbrella of why, why do we trust this? Why do we trust this? Of all the New Testament books now identified, historians have fragments and samples from some of these writings as far back as the second or third century. So that's remarkably close to when they were originally authored. So within a couple hundred years, some of them are even closer. So for by comparison, most of the ancient classical literature, so like Plato, Aristotle, things that I, I won't claim to have ever read, but uh, <laughs> these are things that are accepted in culture as like, you know, wisdom uh, and, and things that we study and, and people build their entire careers around these things. So um, some of these have hundreds or even in the case of the ones I just mentioned, over a thousand years between the original authorship and the earliest manuscript that we actually have. So a, a whole millennium has passed before that's like as far that's as close as we can get to what some of these guys wrote but we have stuff within just even a couple hundred years so it's extremely fascinating there's even non-christian accounts of jesus and the early church um, from greek and other non-christian writers to validate their existence and activities so we can be thankful that while god was under no obligation to do so he has graciously preserved um uh i'm sorry he has graciously preserved evidence to satisfy our human inquiry. So for the sake of time, I just want to briefly highlight for me what are some of the compelling arguments for trustworthiness of the New Testament based on the content in the New Testament. Um, These are things that have kind of resonated with me. First, the men writing these books were not writing to make themselves look good. Many of the accounts in the writings show them in poor light. Uh, In the case of the Gospels, these uh, were eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus by those who walked with him verifiable information uh, that was written while many others who also witnessed these things were still alive and could have disputed their accounts. Uh, Another thing that is compelling to me, uh, second, the authors were suffering physical harm as they labored to spread the good news of Jesus. They had no earthly incentive to continue to do so other than their love of Jesus Christ, what they had seen, what they had heard, the spirit at work inside of them. Third, they understood the gravity of the task of writing scripture and were aware that what the spirit and were aware that that was what the spirit was leading them to do. They were they weren't just writing things and totally oblivious that this was going to be scripture. They, they weren't it, it, it was very known to them. So 2 Peter 3:16 demonstrates Peter's knowledge that the canon of scripture it was open once again after hundreds of years and affirms that Paul is writing scripture when he refers to Paul. It says our brother Paul our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, 
which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter's saying, Scripture is being written and being poured out right now by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul quotes the words of Jesus, which is interesting because he, he didn't have a chance to walk with Jesus, but he's quoting the words of Jesus, and he's getting these from Luke 10.7. So he's, he is taking already Scripture that is, being, that is being put together out of Luke, and now Paul is, is saying this. He said, the laborer deserves his wages. So he's referencing words of Jesus found in Luke. So Paul calls, in this, Paul calls this scripture. So Paul is, is realizing there, there's new scripture being poured out right now. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Lastly, a compelling thing for me, which might, might resonate with you as well, the intricacy with which the book fit along, the New Testament books fit alongside the Old Testament and with each other, even though they were written over across 50 years by many authors, is astounding and, and truly leaves me in awe and with confidence that indeed the New Testament was written under the direct supervision of God as the authors were carried along by the Spirit. So we may be tempted to doubt the trustworthiness of God's word. Indeed, this is what Satan, the deceiver and liar, must do to separate us from God and to cause us to doubt. But as Christians, we look again to the words of Jesus that man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is, that is life to us. We cannot be separated from the word of God. God cares deeply about his word and knows that we need it for life because he designed it that way. We can be confident and rest in the faithfulness of our Father, giving us, his children, his true and trustworthy word. <clears throat> so let's talk about delight. If, as Christians, we believe that God has established his word for us in written form and that it's trustworthy, then what we have in our hand is a treasure unlike any other. No other book on any shelf is in the same category of literature as the word of God, a book of history, commands, praise, wisdom, prophecies, prescription for our lives, every word of it true. What do we do with this treasure? We are amazed by it, fascinated by it. It captivates us and delights us. And I, I wrote this as, you know, I was just thinking like, think of like uh, treasure room scenes in like movies and shows. Like in your favorite things, like like what like those like amazing revealing of treasure, and I wrote down like uh, maybe it's Indiana Jones, maybe it's National Treasure, for you '90s kids maybe it's like Ducktales, all right, all right, it's great. So, but there's like a there's like a this awe inspiring. There's this chase after treasure. There's this like amazing treasure room scenes. Can God's word actually delight us in this way? I don't remember ever seeing a Bible at the center of those treasure room scenes. But honestly, if I'm honest, I probably wouldn't expect it. I just have to be honest ab about how little I treasure a book, this, this is just crazy, created by the author of the universe. How clouded has my thinking become that I don't give it much regard most days. If there was an announcement today that we found a, a clump of cells living on Mars, it would captivate and fascinate the, the world. 
And all of the conversations would be about the origins of life and implications to our understanding about our place and purpose in the universe. And all the while, sitting on the shelf in most Americans' homes will be a dusty Bible filled with the words of the creator of the universe. So what, like what more can we want? Let's look again at 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. My human emotions kind of go all over the place when I read that list. I see, um, uh, I see teaching. I'm like, oh, that's good. Uh, reproof. I'm like, oh, that sounds kind of like uncomfortable. Correction. That's kind of also uncomfortable. Training. That sounds hard. But like these are like wonderful things if you want to be complete, equipped for every good work as God has described and designed. And we do want that as Christians, even though it will be hard and uncomfortable. Um, but that's a pretty great promise. Who wouldn't like to be made complete and equipped for every good work? Isn't that kind of at the core of nearly every human decision we make? We determine that something about our current situation isn't complete, so we change jobs, join new clubs, you know, change relationships. We move, we acquire more stuff. Some urge or notion motivates us to take action. We take a step in a direction we believe is better than the last. And it's certainly at the heart of every advertising campaign. Anyone who wants to ever sell you anything must first convince you or find that you're already in agreement that what, it, or what you currently have or your current state is not yet complete. If you were complete, then you'd lack nothing and have no need for their offer. This is all said similarly in James 1-2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we read here that being perfect and complete and lacking in nothing is what God wishes to produce in us. We also read that trials are present through this process, so that steadfastness of faith is produced for our perfection. So God is advertising and prescribing his path towards being made complete. But what does he want? What is, what's being accomplished? What, what does that look like? If, if he'll allow trials and send his people wandering in a desert, what is he trying to accomplish? A pure, this is what he's trying to accomplish, a pure desire for and a delight in him. People who love him with all that they are. He's creating a people who hang on his every word, sheep who hear his voice. In Nehemiah 9.19, um, in that, area, that part of scripture, we read about God's faithfulness and provision for his people when they were wandering in the desert, which he, he sent them into the desert, listing the ways that he's cared for them. And it finally says, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. And I, I was like, man, that is very interesting, because I think I could probably name some things that they didn't have as they wandered in the desert, but... God, who never lies and is pure and right and all he says, states that they lack nothing. So lack can't mean that we've obtained everything possible to acquire. Can we actually be complete, lacking in nothing in the sense that God has designed? So if so, do you, would you even believe that's good, that, that lacking in nothing actually means not having everything that you want? Or do you think about it like I do sometimes, that, that 
what God's talking about here must just mean filling up the spiritual side of your life. So like my kids like to claim, it's like two sides of your stomach, the dinner side and the dessert side, <laughs> right? right? God will take care of the spiritual side, but I'll need to take care of like the rest of the stuff for myself. You know, like I'll have to take care of my physical needs and like emotional, I'll have to get for me to address those things. But let's not be deceived by this thinking because scripture never describes the situation or our bodies this way. God satisfies our spiritual needs and also our physical and emotional needs as well. His word speaks and nourishes all parts of us. We just read about his care for his people wandering in the desert. And then uh, we'll mention Matthew 6.31 follows just after Jesus spoke of how our father feeds uh, the birds and clothes the flowers. And he says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them, need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And just before that section, Jesus, what's recorded is him having said, it is is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. And just prior to that, he says, you cannot serve God in money. And right before that, he's found saying, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we really come to the central matter here, which is that delight is a function of the heart. Our hearts will be delighted in something, likely many things. Uh, We're not delighted or fascinated by things we've not heard about or seen with our own eyes. There's wonders of the world, and there's foods I've not tasted, pleasures, all kinds of things I've never heard about. And so <clears throat> I'm not so delighted or tempted by those things. I don't, I don't know. They're unknown to me. However, there are many that I have tasted and do bring me delight. And if I'm not careful, I can make, make them, I can make an idol, a treasure out of good gifts of family and food and work. And my heart will rest there. My treasure will be there in good gifts rather than in the giver. And God's word is similar. If it's unknown to us, and we never listen to it, and we never read it, never taste the goodness, then we're not going to treasure it or delight in it either. So let me read some verses from God's word describing the effects of his word written by men who experienced its effects. A lot of these are from Psalm, actually quite a few from Psalm 119, kind of a cool pile of stuff in there. Uh, Psalm 1 and 2, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Uh, Psalm 119, 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than the honey to my mouth, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. Verse 161, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. A few more, Jeremiah 15, 16. Uh, This one's kind of interesting too. Uh, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart for I am called by your name O Lord God of hosts I just think about you would think that would certainly have been on Jesus's mind when he's fighting temptation what an interesting like I I, your words were found and I ate them very interesting like Jesus hungry after 40 days um uh Proverbs 35, uh, 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge. 
uh, Luke eleven twenty eight. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That was Jesus talking about. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Uh, last one, Hebrews 6, 5 um, speaks of tasting the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So there, there's lots and lots more. These are, these are just a sampling of, of just how, how God has described the effect of his word on our hearts and our minds and our bodies. These things will never be said of Plato or Shakespeare or any admired human author. How do words even accomplish all of this? Well, God's words are not mere words. Hebrews 4.12 states, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This verse always makes me a little squeamish because we've moved on from training, correcting, reproving. Now we're like piercing and dividing joints. So I just it always makes me a little like, oh, that sounds really painful. But, <laughs> but, that is, but God's word is living and active. And what's really interesting is it's clear from this that God's words accomplish what human words cannot. And, and we notice here that we have discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's words always strike his intended target, our hearts. And when they hit, it either reveals love and delight and submission, or it reveals apathy, disdain, rebellion. The measure of our delight in the words of God is affected by the frequency and the amount of time we spend consuming it. His promise for those who draw near is that his words have power to accomplish all his will in our life making us complete and lacking nothing. So we have the trustworthy word of God in our possession, a treasure that brings us delight, the word of life. <clears throat> Let's now examine why we should also cherish or guard this treasure. Um, I, I want to read just a little bit further in our passage, a little further than um, we had talked, but looking down in 2 Timothy 4, 2, just a few verses later. <clears throat> Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So affirmed here again, are actions which the word accomplishes, reproving, rebuking, exhorting, but also found here is a warning about people wandering from the truth. And what's presented as a preventative measure is an exhortation to never cease preaching God's word. And, and there's not like a preaching season <laughs> per se, but rather we should be prepared to speak the word of God, not just within our MCs or DNAs, but also in the neighborhood and at work and at school and at family holidays. I know many of us have probably experienced a situation like this. Uh, a conversation begins about God, uh, maybe with a Christian or a non-Christian. And the longer the conversation goes on, you start to get very concerned. I think especially when this is with per perhaps someone claiming to know Christ, things are starting to sound really fishy. The things they are saying and the ideas they are adopting, they're beginning to be gripped by causes, political ideology, and you start hearing the names of other voices influencing their thinking, celebrities, maybe some of those are pastors, politicians, influencers, authors, 
And it seems those voices are drowning out the word of God in your friend's life. What will you do? Often we're caught off guard, not ready to preach out of season, not ready to protect and defend God's true word. The statement here in 2 Timothy is that people are going to believe something. They are either going to believe the true word of God, or they will wander off with their itchy ears and surround themselves with other voices which support the desires of their flesh. Their ears are not really itchy. It's like just like they're like they're just longing to hear what they want to hear. Okay. And the scary part is that every one of us is susceptible to this as well. We're not immune to this. We must cherish the word of God as both the diagnostic and the medicine necessary for our lives. So let's consider a couple areas uh, in our lives demanding the necessity of scripture. Um, we already talked a, a little bit here about how it counteracts this drift from truth. There's a more, even maybe more frightening situation <coughs> of it uh, we're warned of in scripture, which is to be watchful for false teachers and wolves and attacks from Satan, the deceiver. Numerous locations in God wor God's word, we are warned about these dangers from false teachers. Matthew 7 and 24, Acts 20, uh, to name a few. And at the core is a battle for truth, which is why they're known as false teachers. We looked earlier at how we can trust God's word as truth, and so false teachers must attack truth in some way to lead people astray. They're not going to lead people astray with truth. They're, they need to attack truth, the very truth of God's word. So they'll attempt to question the words of God, questioning your memory of it, questioning your understanding of it, uh, maybe reciting parts of it, but twisting it in a way from, from what is right. Um, I was thinking about the first deception listed, uh, which is in Genesis 3.1, when Satan as a serpent is speaking to Eve and said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So even this initial framing of the question contains false information. God never said, don't eat of any tree in the garden. He was very specific. Don't eat out of, you can eat them all. Don't eat this one specific tree. Satan's like, did God really say you can have any? It's just, it, just like taking even the very words of God and already just like twisting them in a question. Um, uh, so this, uh, this twisting uh, intended to begin to draw Eve into a dialogue and ultimately cause her to distrust God. Since this first temptation, Satan has been whispering in the ears of God's children, did God actually say, is this really a sin? So how blessed are we to possess the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, now written for us, and withstand these temptations, and stand on truth as Jesus did in his own responses to Satan's tempting. So we cherish the word of God and recognize its necessity for the defending of truth and for defending us from our enemy's attacks and traps. Another reason we should cherish the word of God is because it is only by the word of God that the specific knowledge of the gospel of salvation comes to us. Romans 10:13 states, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's excellent news. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? People cannot know about God and what he has done for them without the word, without the word of God coming to them. 
it's not possible to observe this information from nature or deep self-reflection or through extensive studies of man-made literature. People need to hear or read the words of God. And so, like 1 Timothy 6.20 states, we guard the deposit entrusted to us as Christians. I'll give this one more reason for now as to why we should cherish the word of God. And this brings us back to an earlier point. God's words feed our life. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In 1 Peter 1 and 2, we, we read that believers have been born again, quote, through the living and abiding word of God. And that the word of the Lord remains forever. And that this word is the good news that was preached to you. But then Peter goes on to say, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So our relationship as believers, our relationship to God's word is that of an infant needing nutrition to grow into maturity. Continuing, this continues, this biblical theme is all through all of the New Testament of the word providing sustenance for us. Psalm 119, kind of this last one in this section. Psalm 119 states, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So we take God's word and we store that up in our heart. Um, This is a storing and remembering of God's words helps us pursue righteousness. So for the sake of the mission of the gospel, for the defense of ourselves and the church, and for the nourishment we need in our lives, we must be devoted to cherishing and guarding God's word, which has come to us. So in closing, uh, friends, we serve a God who created all things, including mankind. We became sinful by nature and were in need of a savior, which God provided in his son, Jesus Christ, sacrificed for us. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Have confidence that God, that our God, who gave the blood of his son to purchase us, has also given us all that we need in his holy word. He has not kept anything back from us that we, that we are in need of. Do, so this is, this is for us. Do you currently have a plan for how to regularly consume the word of God? I guarantee that everyone here knows where their next food-based meal is coming. Like in the next 30 minutes, we're all going to like cram a bunch of food in our mouth. I'm sure we all know where that's coming from. But do you know where your next meal of God's word is? When is that? And when will that be and what will you eat? Let's chat about this in our MCs and GNAs. And also, let's just be real about where we're with this. You know, there's highs and lows for, for all of us. God is, has people in your MC that are, that are doing this faithfully and excellently. Let them help equip you. And there's also people in your MC, if that's someone, if you're someone who has a, a rich habit of studying God's word and he is doing that really wonderfully in you, there are people in your MC that do not have that. I've experienced seasons of both of those things. Often, I'm in the low side of that. So I'm greatly helped by people who have really have excellent habits of just feasting on God's word. It's a great encouragement for me. Let's talk about this in our MCs and DNAs. Also, uh, just kind of quick, we recently rolled out a tool called the Equipping Pathway um, here at Cross City. Uh, it's a tool to help assess and mature uh, each of us in our faith. If some of that, con- if some of the content today stirred your heart, um, I encourage you to look at that how to read and how to think sections of that document. It's got a lot of cool resources in there about how to advance our thinking in this area. So 
brothers and sisters, let's not distrust God's word. Let's not become malnourished. Let's not drift from what is true. Let's run with endurance and finish this race, encouraging one another along the way, clinging to the words of God for our very life. So I'll pray as our worship team comes back up. Father, you've been so gracious to us, giving us all that we need. Thank you for giving us your word, written and preserved in our own language, so we can feed ourselves at any time with true nourishment. Will you please help us to be people who trust and delight in your words? Draw us to scripture as our first reflex and not as an afterthought or consolation. Let us be a church that encourages one another to be consumers of your word above all other delights. Help us store up these treasures in our heart, commit them to memory, and have them ready to share with those around us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.